Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord, a podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. Hi, I'm Brian Lord, your host of the Beyond Speaking podcast. Today, our guest is Adam Creek. Adam is one of North America's top management consultants and executive coaches. He's got degrees and certifications from Stanford University, UBC Sauter School of Business, and Queen Smith School of Business. He's a guest lecturer at the University of Victoria and teaches strategies and skills for leadership, high performance, and perseverance to corporate and government teams globally. Uh, With the Olympics coming up, uh, we thought Adam would be a perfect fit. He's a two-time Olympian. He holds 60 international medals, including Olympic gold and multiple Hall of Fame inductions. Uh, in 2013, Adam made the first ever attempt to row unsupported across the Atlantic from Africa to America and was the subject of the N- NBC Dateline documentary, Capsize. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here, Brian. What What is, I guess with the Olympics coming up, I know we'll talk about some of the business things, but as an Olympian, what are you feeling right now and and what is what memories are brought back for you with the Olympics coming up? Well, well, one thing I'm feeling right now with the Olympics coming up is just a memory of the news cycle, which is more of a <laughs> side note in that, you know, before every Olympics, you know, there's a lot of negativity that comes into the games. There's a lot of criticism. And I think it's really important yeah, to recognize that that is a pattern. And, uh, you know, when I was a young athlete, I had great coaches and mentors who pointed out uh, the news cycle and that really helped me manage what the conversation would be uh, and actually help push that to the side. You know, one of the key, uh, you know, the key concepts that helped me as an Olympian and then certainly helps, uh, you know, my clients now as an executive business coach is the locus of control. So you need to focus on what you can control. So as an Olympian, you can't control what the news media is going to say and the negativity bias that they're going to have uh, and all the news stories that they'll be covering leading up to the games. But what you can focus is, is, is the information that you do choose to consume. And two, you can focus on the job that matters, which is you know, preparing uh, for the games. So you know, the athletes right now, which is like you know, myself when I was preparing for the games you know, a number of years ago, you know, they're, they're getting close to the end of what I call a super compensation phase. Uh, especially in the very physical events where they've pushed their bodies harder than they've ever pushed their bodies before in their life. And now they are uh, scientifically and carefully tapering uh, so that they will be powerful, (laughs) juicy, strong, uh, limber, and so, and the nerves will be ramping up too. So the, you know, they'll be starting to anticipate it. And in the next, a week or so, uh, uh, the athletes that are competing at the first week of the Olympics will be actually showing up on the venues, and that's when that's when the nerves really start to bubble. How do you handle that sort of? Uh, I know a lot of people right now have been going through tremendous stress and everything else. For an Olympian, you have to deal with that as well. What are those specific ways? You've already talked about sort of focusing, uh, focusing out, realizing the negative is going to come. Mm-hmm. How do you get your mind shift onto the positive? How do you get, there's, well, there's a number of techniques. You know, one is uh, recognizing that discomfort is going to come 
and and welcoming it and being grateful for it, being being grateful for the discomfort because you know that the discomfort is a tool. It's a tool to help you perform. You know, one of the phrases that we would often say uh, on on race day, especially because you'd be you'd be very uncomfortable, you'd be pulsing with nerves. You'd say, "Well, today is a special day." And, you know, today's a day just like every other day, but it's just a special day. And that way you could deal with the discomfort uh, a little more, um, you know, you know, you know <laughs> I guess a little more gracefully uh, would be a great way to describe it. And then you welcome it. You welcome the nerves. And it's, it's recognizing that the nerves are there to help you. And when you have this, you know, this you know, feeling of fear, it can be easily transmuted into, uh, in, into this feeling of courage, into this feeling of volition, into this feeling of, uh, of drive. And there, there's a lot of benefit. You know, one of the conversations you know, I'd often have in my head is that you know, my body is producing all of this energy to help me. The stress is here to help me. My body is not trying to hurt me. It's my brain is recognizing that there is a future event that is coming that is going to be difficult. And so my body is creating adrenaline. It's creating cortisol. It's creating all of this energy uh, to, to help me do my job. And so it was my job as the higher being, you know, who had control over my body and awareness over my body to do some of the simple things that we all know we need to do in times of stress. Like, you know, take deep belly breaths, breathe through the nose, you know, drink lots of water, take care, have self-compassion, make sure that you're resting properly, taking time for yourself, setting healthy boundaries, yeah, um, there's so many things that you can control in, in times of stress that uh, um, that when the nerves do come and then the discomfort comes, it's uh, you know it's important to focus on the things you can control and and welcome the energy of the body. One thing that is has been impressive about what you've done both in business and uh, in athletics is staying at a high level. So I'm getting a lot of questions from clients now, some of whom, um, you know, had really difficult years last year and some of them in, um, you know, construction. I know you do a lot of talk for safety talks, that sort of thing. They're saying, how do we keep at this high level and how, how does someone, um, sus you know, sustain greatness? Well, how do you sustain greatness? There's there's two forms of motivation that push us to greatness. And there's the extrinsic motivation, and then there's the intrinsic motivation that comes. Extrinsic motivation, I don't talk a lot about or teach a lot about because I feel like that is natural. If you're a naturally competitive person, you are extrinsically motivated. You see someone else, you want to compete against them, you want to beat them, you want to, you want to raise the bar. Um, likewise, if you're an individual who's within a large organization, the or big organizations are set up with so many extrinsic motivators. You know, get the next job, get the next title, get the next promotion, get the next piece of social recognition. And, and there are so many different um, extrinsic motivators, you know, right? We're, we're seeking pleasure and seeking reward or avoiding pain, or we're looking to conserve energy. And those are the three main motivators that, that will motivate us extrinsically. 
But when we talk about sustaining success, success is sustained when we have intrinsic drivers that are actively harnessed. And, uh, and I say su sustained success happens when we both harness extrinsic motivators and intrinsic motivators. You find the extrinsic motivators that are driving you forward and make sure that those extrinsic motivators are in full alignment with your intrinsic motivators. And one of the best ways I've found to define your intrinsic motivators and you know, the cognitive space that we, that we hold, you know, the, de the decisions we make um, is, you know, towards uh, you know, <laughs> the positive self-talk that we need to um, ingrain within us is to be very aware of our values, what we value and being very clear on the utility of values. And so I, um, you know, when I was younger and when I was an athlete, intuitively, I would, I would pair extrinsic motivation with intrinsic motivation. And uh, as I moved into the world of executive business coaching, I, I discovered, you know, the tools and the language that were necessary to make sure that you know, we were doing that on a regular basis. And I found that there's a lot of uh, confusion and conflation between values and other ideas. You know, people think values are principles. People think values are characters. People think values are beliefs. And each of these are slightly different um, concepts. And, and where, how I like to define, and it's hard to define something because you have to define it by, by other words, but you know, you know, values are these, that we, these character traits that we hold of highest, of, high, of highest importance in our own life, in our own personal truth, that we use to make decisions, both consciously or unconsciously. So when we talk about sustaining success, you can sustain success as an individual and you can sustain success as an organization. And so when you sustain success as, as an individual, you're constantly making the right decisions. So you're making decisions that are in alignment with your personal values, because regardless of whether you know and you have ide identified, articulated and affirmed your personal values, you will make decisions according to those values. And if you don't, you will suffer. You will suffer the pain. You will suffer the failure. You'll suffer the um, <laughs> the lack of confidence that comes from not living your personal truth, not living your values. And you also need to make sure that your decisions that you set are in alignment with the um, with you know with the goals that you set, with the extrinsic motivators that you have. And then likewise, moving it up to an organizational standpoint, we're talking about a culture. So you have a culture of an organization and we all know, uh, you know, the emotional load and the energetic load that it takes to manage other people, especially you know, our teams and our staff and, you know, the people that we lead. If we can guide them to make better decisions more often, the energetic load that's placed and the stress load that's placed on us as leaders is lower. So by having a values-driven culture and having individuals who understand how to apply values to their own personal life, you can then elevate that to the context of the organization. So now you have an organization that has goals, which are the extrinsic motivators of the organization, and you have an organization that's driven by values. And so when you have to make a decision within your organization, you say, well, do I work with client A or client B? Well, let's, you know, there, we have limited time. 
We have limited resources, we have limited energy, and we're constantly having to make decisions about where we put our energies. If you can make that decision through your filter of values, then you'll you'll make the better decision more often. And then if uh, the people on your staff, the people on your team are making decisions according to values, then the managing load is less on you. They're making better decisions on their own more often. And the culture of the organization is, you know, eating the proverbial strategy for lunch. So when it comes to values, maybe what are a couple that, that you have um, like, and how did you arrive at those? Yes. So I would say one, uh, one value I have is, uh, is generous impact. So this value of generous impact, I I learned about it, it, that was actually a long time ago. It was back in my athletic journey. Uh, So, you know, like you said before, I went to the Olympics a couple of times, won an Olympic gold medal. I won a number of world championships and I was really lucky to be part of a team for about a decade who is just winning and winning and winning and repeating success. And I think a big part of that was that we were a very values driven team. But through that context, and you know, especially as a younger person, um, you, know, you discover your values through the high points and the low points of your life. And we had just won the world championships. We'd gone to Seville, Spain. I was rowing in the men's eight, so these long, skinny boats. And we we go, we we win the race. We um, uh, we're the first men's eight. Uh, you know, I'm a Canadian, so we're the first men's eight in Canada to have ever won a world championship. So we're going in the history books. You know, it's you know world's first heavyweight champion of the world. You know, walking around in Spain, you're in your early twenties. Like, what could, like, what could be better? It was a really good day. Uh, but then it was about a week later. I was back in my hometown, and I was getting ready for uh, another year of training. We were working up towards uh, the Olympics that were still, you know, two years away, and I just found myself, you know, empty depressed, demotivated, not knowing if this journey was for me. And really what that was telling me and what that was, was my values were out of alignment with my goals. You know, values are never achieved. You know, values needed to be lived. They are never achieved. They just always need to be, you know, expressed and, um, and used and decisions need to be made according to them. And so after some, you know, some soul searching and some consultation with mentors, I realized that um, a a very strong personal value of mine is generous impact. So generous impact. And for me, the decision I made at that point in time was to become a big brother through big brothers and sisters. Oh, very cool. And I, I, I found this little guy. He's eight years old at the time. We still, we still have a relationship to this day. And uh, he's actually grown up. I'm, you can't see it on Zoom, but I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm about six foot five, 235 pounds. And my little brother is even bigger than me, which <laughs> I would have never guessed when I started hanging out with them. Just mentored him to be tall. Uh, yeah, exactly. I just passed uh, <laughs> the tall mentorship. <laughs> but uh, by having that impact, it, it really, um, it really restarted 
um, my motivation, restarted my drive, and was enabled, and it enabled me to achieve my goals in my way, according to my own personal truth. And I found that you know, honoring this need to deliver a generous impact in all that I do has uh, you know has certainly directed me to my current career, you know, as an executive business coach, and uh, and all the projects that I take on. And I know that if I'm not delivering a generous impact in all that I do, then I'm, I'm not honoring my personal truth. I'm not honoring myself. And uh, I've, you know, I've become victim to self-sabotage. So that's, um, you know, that's certainly one value, you know, that I hold. And, you know, I've got, you know, a number of other ones like uh, vital physical sensations. You know, I need to feel alive. I need to feel physical. I need to feel that energy, you know, and for me, that's, you know, that's involved in, you know, live presentations that I give. It's involved in, you know, in exercise. Uh, and I, you know, every week I'm, and every day I'm going out, and I'm doing something physical simply because that's, you know, that's my nature uh, as, uh, you know, as a being. And, you know, I've, I value growth and flow. Uh, so making sure that I, I'm, I'm growing and it's in a, in a state that's sustainable and engrossing. And uh, I value a loving connection. So I want to make sure that I'm connecting in a loving way to uh, the people that I interact with. And so, you know, these are, you know, these are the values that I live by. And I guess the final one is persistent ambition. So I'm, I'm a very ambitious person. And although I'm friendly, I'm also very competitive. <laughs> and I have, there, there's a lot, there's a lot that I want to achieve. And I feel the need to achieve um, in my life. So I need to make sure that I have channel, uh, I, I'm channeling that ambition in a way that's, that, you know, that is persistent and, um, and, you know, honors that that part of my nature. And again, you know, everyone's values are slightly different. And the I've got a, a, a very defined method that I work people through. Um, I was just working with the, the Centers for Disease Control earlier this week, and ran a lot of their senior leaders through, you know, the personal values discovery process. And it's, I, I'm just amazed, I guess it serves my value of generous impact, because it, the, they benefit everyone benefits so much from understanding the personal values we benefit like science is very clear on values they show that when people understand their values they have more willpower they feel less pain uh, they're able to do things like quit you know uh, quit smoking start exercising and there's actually real physical markers that they've found they've run people through um, values you know, discovery and affirmation exercises and found that people uh, recovering from heart surgery have lower markers of inflammation uh, simply from uh, identifying and living according to their values and then from a business standpoint and a leadership standpoint, it's very clear that uh, leaders who are clear on their values and uh, communicate those values to those that they are leading are rated as being 40% more effective than those who do not. Mm. So there's, uh, there's a direct correlation between performance and, and, and values-driven uh, life. And then also within again, within an organization, it's a very empowering uh, experience to go through. When you recognize what your values are and you can structure your career and, and what your 
uh, what your goals are within an organization that is compelling you to do things. Often when we're working in a large organization, there's lots of things that we don't necessarily want to do. And sometimes it's, it's too structured or too rigid and change doesn't happen fast enough or change happens too fast. Or, you know, there's a lot of things, again, coming back to the start of our conversation, there are things, a lot of things out of our control when you're working in a large organization. And that was very clear in the COVID crisis. You know, we're part of a larger society and you know, we have this, you know, this disease pandemic that's spreading and you know, we're recommended to shut down and not do the work that we've, you know, that we've done before in the same way that we've done before. And you know, in these times when there are things out of control and in these times when we're, we're enduring, um, you know, when we're enduring a, you know, a crisis or, or when we're doing change, let me say, when we're doing a change, change is not a crisis unless, you know, values have been violated. And, you know, and bringing it back to, you know, the individual working into, in the larger organization, you know, organizational change isn't a crisis unless one of your core values is um, you know, and has been violated. Mm. So when when individuals are very clear upon their personal values, they're better able and better equipped to endure change. And when an organization is changing in alignment with its values, then it can endure, then it can drive change that much faster. But it, again, the larger the organization, the higher up the leader, the, the, yeah, the bigger the microscope that you're under and the more clear you have to be about truly what you value as an individual and what the organizational values and how you're living and expressing those values. Because we see this all the time in organizations where a leader will express that they'll say, oh, we value teamwork. And then they go against that and they're like, no, my way or the highway. And then it's like, well, why are you saying we value teamwork when you're acting like, you know, an aggressive individual? And, you know, that can be okay as long as it's articulated and that's part of the culture. But it's, if it's not that scene, you know, one, two layers down the organization, that leadership faux pas is immediately identified and all respect and credibility is lost by, by the leader and, um, and, and the culture dies. So, but when, when organizations have a very strong values driven culture, just like when sports teams and athletic teams have a very strong values driven culture, you can sustain success. You can endure change and you can, you know, keep it going for the long term. So uh, I know you've been, you know, you've talked about, you know, teamwork and, and, you know, working within an organization, everything else. So I'm curious how that leads into your epic, um, you know, voyage of, uh, you know, working to go from Africa to the Americas. Can you just, cause that's just a crazy story. So can you, can you share that? And then also, if you can shoehorn your values into that, that'd be interesting. <laughs> that's, uh, that's an amazing thing. I'd love to hear about what goes into why do you want to do that? Um, and then what it was like, you know, with that attempt. Well, I'll put it into context because I had just spent close to a decade pursuing, you know, an Olympic journey. You know, and an athletic journey is very intense. It's very individual, uh, forces you to search your soul, uh, forces you to grow in ways that you'd never thought possible. 
but there's also a decompression period that needs to occur after an Olympic journey and you need to move on to that next thing in life. Uh, for me, I was moving on to, you know, uh, I guess a, a, a role in, you know, as an entrepreneur, I'd started a, you know, a biofuel company. Uh, people were starting to ask me to, you know, come speak at conferences and, uh, and, and do some training. And, you know, this was over a decade ago. And at that time, I was still, I was missing the sport. So I got, uh, I decided I was going to uh, get into ocean style rowing. And I, I went to this race down in um, San Francisco. And we went and we uh, raced from Sausalito under the Golden Gate Bridge and back. And it was a great it was a great race. It was good fun. It was more of like a beer league style of rowing where you'd go to the race and you have some beer and a barbecue. And it was, uh, it was, it's just good sort of community feeling. Uh, and at that, at that race, I met a guy by the name of Jordan Hansen. And, and up until this point in time, I had heard of people doing crazy things like this of, of rowing across an ocean or, or climbing remote mountains or, or doing these adventurous remote things. And it, it seemed crazy to me. And then I was actually sat down with Jordan who had rode across the ocean himself. And he explained, you know, the collegiality, the friendship, the connection with nature, the animals that would come up, the, you know, the joy of being in the wild with people you enjoy. Uh, and it just, it just captured me and it captured my imagination. You know, what, what would it be like to be in a rowboat in a starry night in the middle of the ocean where you're closer to <laughs> the astronauts in the space station than you are to anyone on land? <laughs> what, what would that feel like? And that, that idea captured my mind and it, it captured my imagination. And that led a, a five-year journey from you know, ideation to execution I suppose. So we started you know, building a program, building a project. We had to put together a half a million dollars. You know, I'm not independently wealthy. You know, I've got a mortgage, a minivan, three kids. It's <laughs> so I had to figure out how to put the money together uh, to to make a project like this work. And, uh, uh, and we managed to do that. We, we did that in, you know, and again, right in alignment with our values, you know, we, uh, as a team, we, you know, we valued, um, you know, exploration uh, and discovery. We valued connection, connection with one another, connection with uh, the unknown, uh, the, uh, yeah, the wilderness, you know, connection with, with God and all that's, you know, that mystery that's out there when you, when you pull yourself out of society, we were, um, and we were again motivated by impact. We we reached over thirty thousand school kids with our educational programming. We partnered with eight different uh, universities. We helped some people get their PhDs, their master's degrees. Uh, we studied human psychology under duress. We were studying ocean science. Uh, we were studying human device interaction. We were working with NOAA, the National Atmospheric and Oceanic um, Agency. You know, giving them weather readings. We're doing a lot of a lot of stuff on this boat, you know, beyond just rowing twelve <laughs> hours a day, <laughs> and and so it was a 
yeah, it was a long journey of preparation and we, uh, it was a thrill to certainly launch from, uh, we launched from Dakar, Senegal, uh, and, you know, what a joy to see, you know, Africa slowly melt away in the horizon over a couple of days as he took some strokes, uh, and also kind of scary. <laughs> and, and then you, you know, then you go through a bit of an ad adaptation period, you know, the first couple of days are exciting. And then from say day three to 10, you're thinking like, you stupid idiot. Like, why, why did you, what did you choose to do? Like this, this is ridiculous. You're on a little boat in the middle of the ocean alone with, you know, three other guys. <laughs> and then you're uncomfortable, you're seasick, you're adapting. And then, then around two weeks in, you know, you, everybody on the crew starts to adapt and you start to adapt and you think, okay, this is uncomfortable and I can tolerate it. Okay. This is, I'm just going to get to the other side. And you think that's the way it's going to be for the rest of the row. It's not going to be enjoy it. It's not going to be enjoyable, but it's not going to be super, you know, a super self-loathing uh, experience and a disastrous experience. And, but a funny thing happened around day 30, day 35, where everyone sort of crossed over this threshold where you know, our brains and our bodies adapted to, you know, the wind and the waves and the small space and the weather. And it, it truly became a, a, you know, a transcendent experience, uh, one that was, you know, divinely connecting. Uh, we were, you know, you felt energized, you felt normal but a good normal you know the sunrises were unlike any sort of sunrise you could see because the horizon is everywhere and what you're doing is you're spending two hours or four hours or one hour depending on the shift staring at the sky staring at the waves watching nature change you get into the rhythms of the moon and the stars and the, the sunrise and the waves and it was a you know it was, that was just magical and we'd have, you know, whales would come swim up to us, you know, dolphins, you know, flying fish, flying squid. <laughs> and we were, you know, we'd going out there, we conducted our science, we you know, worked with the kids. And then, you know, day 70, day 73, we were going through a crew change unexpectedly when mm -hmm. a funky wave came, smacked our, <laughs> smacked our stern and flooded, uh, flooded the sleeping cabin. And I was I was sleeping in the sleeping cabin. My teammate Pat was was brushing his teeth right at the uh, the door, and before we knew it, the boat was upside down. Wow! <laughs> and you know, there you're, you're trapped. It was a really small it was a really small space uh, to be trapped in. So it was uncomfortable to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> But we, we ended up getting, we deployed emergency life raft. Uh, we ended up getting uh, uh, rescued. It was coordinated by the U.S. Coast Guard. Uh, so what a thrill uh, to have the Coast Guard from Clearwater, Florida uh, there. They diverted a boat called the MV Hygiene who came up next to us and we were, were able to climb out. That was 13 hours after the capsize. Mm. Um, and uh, we ended up getting commendations from the Coast Guard for our safety preparation and uh, our deployment uh, and the way that we were able to, you know, to handle the emergency, which was also, um, which is also wonderful because we did, 
you know, made us really appreciate <laughs> the safety training and the safety preparation. Cause you don't really understand how, how valuable it will be. Cause you've, you're getting ready for this adventure. You've not necessarily done anything completely like it before. Mm-hmm. And you, we went to this group in uh, the Pacific Northwest called Q3 in a town called Bellingham outside of Seattle. And they, you know, they train, you know, they train the Navy or helicopter people or fishermen. Uh, and so we went through their training for 36 hours and we deployed life rafts and we were floating around and, uh, and we just thought it was crazy. And we thought we were, you know, tough guys, <laughs> you know, here we are going through this emergency training. This is never going to happen to us. But this is kind of cool. And then the, the moment that the disaster happened, you know, the flashback to that training that we had gone through was, so much more valuable than I could have even described. You know, you are, you know, your senses are heightened to a level that the only thing I would have comparison to would be, you know, elite international racing because, and probably even more so because your life is on the line. You're like, if you mess up and you don't do this properly, it's, you know, it's over. (laughs) So you better do it properly. <laughs> oh wow! Well, that's that's an amazing journey. What's what's one big takeaway that that you share with people from that? Well, I, you know, there's one big inspirational takeaway, and you know, if we want some inspiration, dot, you know, dose some <laughs> inspiration bombs. Uh, is that you know, fear and doubt are the taxes we must pay to experience the incredible. Mm. And so often people would think that I'm a thrill seeker uh, simply because I would choose to go out in big waves and big ocean and, you know, abandon, you know, know, my family and the comforts of land and and all of this. But in fact, the opposite is true um, is that I'm a seeker of peace. And what I've found living my life is that peace is on the other side of what we fear the most. And that, you know, and if I could say the one thing that I feared the most when I was thinking about crossing the ocean was being trapped in that cabin um, as water flooded in. And I must say that I would have nightmares about that preparing for the ocean. And then when I actually lived through it, it was no problem. (laughs) Right. And, you know, there is, and I'm going to step back just a little, little bit. So like in around day, it was day 50 or day 60. And I was sleeping in the cabin and this is in contrast to, because before we capsized, we were picked up by big waves. We were thrown around. We had oars snap. You know, we had some other scary experiences that made us feel really uncomfortable and, um, uh, you know, unsure. And so there is, there are certainly times like that where you're, you're pushed to the edges of your, your, your comfort, you know, from a security standpoint. But it was around day 60, I was sleeping in the cabin, and all of a sudden I hear this hooting and hollering from the guys on the deck. And like, come out, you got to see this. And I was like, what? Like, I'm sleeping. No, you got to see this. And so you you crack open the little hatch door and you pop your head out. It's the middle of the night, and it's a moon bow. 
I've never heard it's, of that. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. N- neither had I until I saw one. It's a, you know, and it, it you know it wasn't an acid flashback. It was <laughs> actually a real natural phenomenon. Actually, I think first do- uh, documented by um, like Aristotle, I believe. But it's a rainbow um, cast by the moon. Hmm. And so it was. So if you can picture a starry sky, like a beautiful. Like zero light pollution mm-hmm. and the stars are so bright the milky way is just splashing across the sky and there's a rainstorm in one corner and as the rain is falling the light of the moon is reflecting off the rain and casting a rainbow over the milky way and it's you know it's one of those sights that you you know leaves you speechless and I, you know, you try to describe it, but it's hard to describe, but it was just one of those incredible, peaceful, connective moments. And again, if I wasn't willing to go through the fear and the doubt of, you know, the journey itself, I would never have the peace and connection of, you know, of the moon bow. And it's, yeah. and, And I'd say that's one of the biggest takeaways um, you know, fear and doubt are the tax we must pay to experience the incredible. And, and as we recognize that, and as we go through the tough times in our life, and I think that's the, you know, that's the greater metaphor, you know, in our own personal life, our, you know, our boats can be capsized, we can break our oars, we can feel uncomfortable, we can be pushed into a corner, you know, you know, it's funny having gone through, you know, rowing across an ocean, having, um, you know, gone to the Olympics, you know, sometimes I laugh and I shake my head because, you know, middle age can almost be more brutal than that, where you're trying to figure out how to like raise kids, drive your career, um, <laughs> figure out how to like secure a house, where you're going to live, you know, to build a life, to put all that sort of, uh, you know, middle age stuff together. Uh, the, the metaphors lay true mm-hmm. and they're so very useful. So as, as you're going through, you know, the, you know, the big waves and you're getting pushed around by the currents of life, you know, to recognize that, you know, the incredible is around the corner. And if you can endure and, and show grace and persistence, you know, th- throughout the tough times, uh, then you're rewarded with an undeniable feeling of peace and and connection when the inevitable good times do show their face again. Great. Well, Adam, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us and, and your wisdom and experience. And, and uh, we really appreciate it. So thank you so much for coming on. Yes. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to have a conversation with you. Thank you. So for everyone listening, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Beyond Speaking podcast. And if you're interested in Adam, definitely check him out at premierspeakers.com or nationalspeakers.com. So on behalf of everyone at Premier and National, thank you so much for listening and make sure to uh, check out this and other episodes of the Beyond Speaking podcast. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking podcast. To learn more about today's guests, go to beyondspeak.com. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe wherever you listen.